Here we go with another episode of The Real Estate of Things. Oof, we have one of the best operators that I've spoken to. We want to let you know how and what it takes to leave a corporate job where you had 19,000 employees to then quickly grow a 2,800 unit portfolio, how you build great processes, acquire great people, hold them accountable, set expectations, drive disruptive property management that creates an experience unlike any others to set your properties apart, how to renovate units in 72 hours, and woof, we got a lot more. Let's get into it now with Mr. Logan Rankin. You're listening to the Real Estate of Things podcast. And here we go again with another action-packed episode of the Real Estate of Things. I'm Nate Tromfield, your host with Lima One Capital, and we are in for a treat with Mr. Logan Rankin, experienced strategic entrepreneur, built multiple multi-billion dollar businesses, uh, best-selling author, owns 2,800 doors, over 375 million AUM, and has also uh, began his corporate or his career in corporate. Um, and Logan, man, welcome to the Real Estate of Things. I'm really excited to chat with you here and have you provide some great value to our audience. I appreciate you having me on, Nate. Yeah, so let, let's get cranking, man. I want to start a little bit uh, in the beginning of your career and talk to us about you know working in the corporate side and how you progressed and grew yourself in that. Let's start there. Yeah, I started, um, I started right out of college uh, at Target and started as like an assistant manager and slowly just worked my way up. Uh, I ran a store here in Wisconsin, then eventually I ran a district. Um, then I had an opportunity to run a group for a while, um, had got a chance to lead 19,000 people, three and a half billion worth of sales. Um, just some incredible leadership opportunities. Um, you've learned a lot about yourself, about what you're not good at and you need to improve, but also what you're really good at too. Um, I got a chance to lead a team in my last role um, helping implement systematic change across the whole enterprise. So it was, you know, spent one week at headquarters in Minneapolis, had a team where we'd fly around the country and just look at how we improve operations. And that was one of the things that I fell in love with is how do you look at a, a process, right, within a business and make it repeatable, make it fun so you can have somebody drive that process and obviously drive efficiency. And then you line that up with a P&L. And still to this day, my wife gives me a lot of crap. There's not a single P&L you can't put in front of me that I just won't like obsess over. Like I just, <laughs> I just got to look at all the line items. I got to, I got, then I back them out to the systems and I back them out to the people. Um, but yeah, I spent a decade in corporate America and, um, I loved a ton of it. Um, the, the thing I loved the most though was about leadership and just understanding how leadership scales business and drives profitability. Um, and that has helped me a lot in my real estate career. Man, um, you opened a lot of doors there that we're going to have to, to go, go and enter into. So but let's start with the one, you, you, you know, couldn't agree more. You learn probably more about where you're deficient as you scale and grow as a leader, but what did you learn that you were good at as a leader that allowed you to really be so successful in the corporate world? Yeah, a couple of my key strengths. My first one was just an engage and inspires others. So I, I had a way to get people to perform um, at their job at a really, really high level. Um, I set clear expectations. I was very transparent. And uh, I think tough's the wrong word. I'd probably say direct. And I found that like that candor and that transparency uh, a lot of people don't get, right? But they want it. I mean, if they want to be successful, they want it. And it's very easy, the ones that don't want to be successful, right? They probably don't belong on my team in the first place. So, you know, I was 
the two things that I did rather quickly in each one of these things, I give, I give the, especially at a corporate America, this target a lot of credit that if you got great results and you built great teams, seniority didn't matter. You got promoted. And that's what I did. I focused really hard on promoting the people around me and building a great team to achieve a great result. And I always focus on that sustainability. And that sustainability is big, especially if you're going to get promoted, right? Nobody wants, you don't want to promote. And then the team that you built, the results that you were driving just fall off. Um, so I worked really, really hard to build that through engaging the teams, directing the teams, um, giving them transparent feedback and, and making them successful. And that made me successful. I would say the only other strength that I really learned that um, has helped a lot too is just the ability to slow down and strategize. Like, I know that sounds really simple, but in this world with instant gratification and social media, like just, I don't feel a lot of people just slow down and think. Um, and my ability to do that at different points in my career, even now, I, I literally time block it. I mean, we were just talking about time block blocking before we jumped on this call. I time block deep thinking and thinking through how to make things better um, for me, for my team, for my businesses. Um, and I think that that strategy also um, really helped me propel through Target, um, but now has helped me propel a lot of my businesses too. Man, that, that's awesome. I mean, it, we got a lot to relate on here. Um, but I, I mean, I think that no matter where you're at as a successful, productive person, leader, you know, frontline producer, you know, time management is one of the hardest things to do. And then making sure that you're focused on long-term vision strategy, then while also sort of uh, doing the mundane small tasks that build momentum and progress and development is really key. And and I think the, the one thing also I want to take a step further from what you said is um, you know, setting clear expectations is, is uber important and people want that. I, I completely agree with you. I think the other thing people really want that no one ever wants to talk about is accountability, but you can't have accountability if you don't set expectations because otherwise, what do you want people to do or what do they want to do? So, uh, there's, there's a lot there that, um, man, we're, we're, uh, we're going to keep getting into this. So let's then transition a little bit. Um, Actually, let's talk about the transition because I love this question. So like at what point there was some inflection point or something that happened that you said, man, this is great in the corporate world and you got all these people in FTE working under you, but I got to go do this on my own. So what 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 did that like? How did that prescribe into then you going off on your own and becoming an entrepreneur? And we're going to get to that after this. I'll back up a second because I think my journey is a little bit unique uh, of how I scaled my real estate portfolio. So like I was working so hard and I think a lot of people work really, really hard for their money. I just could not point my finger on how hard my money was working for me. So like I, I, I'm classic corporate America journey, put your money into a 401k, put your money into traditional environments and this hope that they get better right? Like that they increase in value, but you have no control, right? It's hard to understand a lot of these vehicles. Um, and for that was hard. I certainly didn't know that I, I just wanted my money to work hard, or at least feel like I knew it was working hard. So I started reading a lot of books and, you know, you read a lot of books too. And eventually it's hard not to read a real estate book if you're trying to read about successful people. Um, and it talked about real estate and I didn't really understand a lot of it, but I did understand enough. In fact, I knew enough to be able to underwrite my first deal from just reading a book. I just plugged in numbers. I told my wife, if we buy a single family house, it should cash flow $3,200. I like, let's just do it. And we saved up for like two and a half years and we bought it, left $7 in our bank account. So we had like no money. Um, so thank God she trusted me. 
but I, I was so organized with my financial plan because I understood P&L. I, tr- I, I kind of, I, I still do to this day. My personal life is my most important business. So I understood my operating income and I understood our operating expenses to be able to live. So having $7 wasn't that big of a deal because I closed on a Tuesday and my check was coming in on a Friday. Um, so, and, and that, that first deal, I, I self-managed. It ended up cash flowing $3,100 and it changed my life because it was $100 from what I underwrote. I never could have done that with any other traditional environments, like investments. Like never could have predicted it and it wouldn't be sitting in my account. So then I just kept doubling as I was working at my corporate job, right? So I bought the single family house, then I bought a duplex, then I bought two duplexes. I just literally just kept going broke. So I would get promoted. We'd keep living at the same amount. I put the money into real estate. And then you asked for my inflection point. It was like a Saturday. I still remember it. You know, it was in two th- early 2019, not that far ago. I had about 255 units, owned them all. And uh, I was looking at the cash flow because I was preparing my taxes. And, you know, my corporate job, I was making about a half a million dollars a year with stock options and bonuses and stuff. But after taxes, because it's not what you make, it's what you keep. Uh, my 252 units was making the same amount. And here I am, like, I have a third party manager. I'm working like 10 hours a month and I'm working 70 hours, nights and weekends. I love my, I like my job, but I'm, I'm just, it's not even comparable. And so I'm like, man, I'm just, Talk to my wife on Sunday, <laughs> prepared a plan, and I put my notice in on Monday. So that's how quick it went. Like I just saw a clear path. Should have probably done more strategy time sooner, but I was making just as much. And I'm like, man, what, instead of ten hours, can you imagine if I put forty towards real estate? Like what I could do. Um, so that was my inflection point. Just writing it all out, seeing how much I was making, but more importantly, seeing the time that it took to make X, and, and that's what made me pull the trigger. That man, that's that's an exciting story. And again, it's just it, it's funny how quickly you transitioned and let go of something that a lot of people would do a lot to to get to. Um, but obviously, you believe in yourself. You had a good plan, and you also were were avail- able to continue on and grow in your strategy. So, all right. So that was 2019, 255 units. See you later, corporate job. Peace out. Now bring us forward to today. So so just. How did it progress to now the around about 2,800 units? Yeah. So yeah, 2,851 I have right now, about 375 million worth of real estate. I got five deals under contract, so I'll, I'll push over 3,000 in June. Um, and here's a cool part about that. I own it all. So I don't have partners. So I don't have syndications. Um, so I have 100% of the equity. Um, I do have a different business that I have 50 units with, and I and I split that 50-50 with the president that runs my property management company. But the 28 that I'm talking about now, like I scaled that whole thing and kept all the equity. And I did that through owning the property management business. And my property management business is also a construction business. And I got really good at picking up properties and apartments and repositioning them and adding a lot of value. You know, the same things that made me great at my corporate job and helped me continue to get promoted or made, translated very easily to the business world. A lot of real estate investors want to scale and they just look at acquiring properties. For me, I'm always looking at acquiring businesses. So every property I own is just their own business. And I just started realizing that if I created a lot of systems, a lot of standard operating procedures that are repeatable, well, then I, I have a competitive advantage. And then in not just the construction space, but even the property management space, because I, I believe we do things in PM that nobody else is doing. And then you can buy an apartment, right? 
You know what the expenses are because you have all these systems that you're just going to plug in and take over. Um, and if you're going to rehab it, you have those systems that are going to help rehab it. And that's what really helped me be able to scale. And I would tell you, I reposition properties a lot faster than most people. So I think I always get the question, well, how do you own it all? How do you scale so quickly? Well, a, no, a normal investor to reposition or let's say, just say rehab a hundred unit apartment is going to take three to four years. I consistently do it in 12 months. And I think that has helped me be able to create a lot of value and buy more. Jeez. Uh, I would, I would think so. And I know just in how you grew or what I'm here and how you grew in the corporate world, you clearly got a good team. So I, I want to get to all PM, CM turns, value add. I want to get to all that, but let's start with what I know. I'm sure you're, you're most proud of. So like, what's the team look like on all those relevant businesses? Yeah. Um, my first hire was the president of my property management company and, uh, he's incredible. He's still with me today. Um, and I believe a lot of, a lot of successful entrepreneurs get stuck in working in their business and not on it. And while I have great strategy, I also know how to execute. And if I didn't hire somebody to run my company from day one, I knew I'd get stuck in it and not working on it. Um, so I give him a ton of credit um, for just helping be able to drive and execute and just build with me. And we're almost at, uh, I think this earlier this week, Monday, our executive HR said we're about 91 full-time employees today. Uh, so yeah, I feel pretty good about that. The team's incredible. We're centralized in uh, Wisconsin um, and we've, we expect we four, four, I'll call it five employees we started with back in 2019. So it's been quite, quite a three and a half years. Jeez. Yeah, that's, that's some scale and growth. I mean, it's a little bit less than 19,000 people, but it's a big, that's a big team, man. That's a, that's a, that's a big team. So, so let's go into, I'm going to pick the PM side first. So uh, in, in studying up on you, you know, I want to ask a specific question because I'm really interested to hear. So how do you look at growing property management to drive disruptive experiences? That disruptive experiences, I'm just eager to hear what even that means. I love talking about property management because I, f I feel like we're positioned to disrupt the whole industry in this space. I think that most, I, I would think most real estate investors would agree that finding a good property manager is very hard to find. Uh, a lot of property management companies have poor leadership, poor systems, they scale poorly, and they don't actually manage the residents and properties very well. In fact, I think the word itself, like property management, um, signifies that it needs to change. Pro I, I equate it to the same as our education system that needs to change too, but that's a whole different topic. Like you should be worried not about the property management first, but actually the hardest part is managing the residents that live there and providing them a good experience. And most property management companies I feel are still catering towards the baby boomers. And while that's important, they're not the number one renters anymore, right? Millennials are and Gen Z and Gen X and, you know, these new renters care much more about the experience and the amenities and being proud of where they live than renters in the past. And I feel like a lot of companies haven't adjusted to that. So I guess to answer your question, we just have implemented a lot of like systematic changes in how we do business. Um, I can give you some examples because I think that helps. So one of our core values is unparalleled experience. And in my eyes, I think we have 13 different processes that property management companies don't touch us on. So for example, let's start with a simple one. We, my, we being my president and I of the property management company, every single quarter call the top 10 biggest property management companies, and we just pick a different state. 
And almost always over 70% of them, right? So seven of the 10 don't answer the phone. So we have to leave a voicemail. And then the seven that we left a voicemail for only half actually even return our, our phone call. So at our company, we answer the phone 98.7% of the time right now, so far in 2023. And we answered on the second ring. Like that's just a different level of experience. When you walk into our lobby, our engagement specialist gets up from the desk and meets you. If you were coming to do the podcast at mine, they would know your name because there'd be a picture in front of them. If you were a brand new move in, we know your name, we know your daughter's name, and we know your pet's name. In fact, we have uh, my property management company is called Focus. We have a Focus branded uh, dog treat as well. You know, there's a reason people move in together. So it's actually not, I always like, I actually think a lot of revolutionizing this industry is, is just honestly doing simple things at a high level. It's, it's, you know, a lot of the things that happen, like somebody calls in to add a pet to their lease. Most property management companies say, all right, here's how much that costs. What is the dog's name? What kind of dog, blah, blah, blah. But why not go the extra mile, right? And send something with that dog's name on it. It costs what, five bucks and you're charging them 50 bucks a month for the pet. So it's all these like little experiences. And we really, really develop our team members to do the things like we call them wow experiences, right? Um, enthusiastic wow with the book we were talking about. Um, so it, it's just important that everybody in our company is doing those type of things. Another thing that we'll do, I won't go through all 13, but so I'm just super passionate about this. But please you, keep going. You, we uh, on site, they're called community ambassadors. So all we want the look, the feel, and even the smell to all be different. So when you, what I mean about the smell, let's start there. Like when I rented, I had this Indian family across uh, the hall and they were amazing people, I, really nice people, but our hallways always smelled like curry. It was so ridiculous. And hallways either smell like, I think some kind of food, um, marijuana or dog. I mean, that's, I mean, if you're in an apartment game, that's what it is. So it's like, if you can make the hallways actually smell amazing, that's, a, that's noticeable. And that's one of our senses. Like we go so far as to add in the uh, paint additives in our Sherman Williams paint that actually makes the wall smell differently. And any good property management knows that once a month you should be touching up the doors and the common areas and stuff like that. So it actually like you, our hallways smell like a, a, a mist breeze. It's a, it's a distinct <laughs> scent um, and it covers up marijuana, it covers up uh, dogs, covers up the food. And we also have spray sensors and stuff like that in every single one of them. And people commented all the time because they're just not used to they're just, they're, I guess they're more used to them smelling bad than good. And then our grass, our grass is edged. It's fertilized. It's landscaped. It's not just cut. It looks better than the single family house yard across. That's our expectations. Our trash dumpsters, you can walk barefoot as a tenant to go throw your trash away. Our lighting, it's the brightest lighting in the community. No woman should be afraid at 730 at night to go take the trash out. Our branding and signing is changed on day one. So people know this is not the same management company. So all this is done under one work stream, which we call the community work stream. And I know you like accountability. So we tie it all together through a community ambassador. Everything in my company, every single person is accountable for only two to three things. And they know from my engagement specialist to my community ambassadors, they're accountable for just two to three things. And every single day, whether that's at Huddle or throughout the company, they can answer how they're doing on those two to three things, including our community ambassadors. So like their job is to make sure the community looks good, feels good, and smells good. And they take it to this extent because that like sounds great, but how do you make sure it's happening? 
So if Nate, if you're moving in and I'm your moving specialist, that's a whole different cool experience, but we won't get into that. When you, once you move in, I now have 72 hours to notify, let's call him Tony, that you are moving into an apartment called Evergreen Ridge. I have 72 hours. So I notify Tony. So now Tony has three days as well to go knock on your door, Nate. And he's going to knock on your door and he's going to have a branded focus template. And in that branded template, it has, says all the things I just told you. So he's going to knock and say, hey, Nate, I heard you just moved into one of my communities. Keyword there, my communities, ownership. Uh, I just want to let you know, my name's Tony and I'm the community ambassador. And I'm super excited for you to be here. By the way, do you need any help moving any big items in? I know it can be a pain sometimes to be able to do that. So he's going to build rapport with you. And then he's going to be like, hey, like I actually um, help make sure that the community looks good, feels good, and even smells good at this community and a couple others. I'm here all the time. So if you see me, I have this card for you. And it actually tells you what my job is. It tells you that if you look at it, right, that you should be able to walk barefoot at the dumpsters. It really says that. And so if you ever see any trash around, it's completely unacceptable. And it actually tells me that I'm not doing my job. I hope you notice you smell the hallways and, and on and on. He's going to go. He's going to talk about the grass. Or he's going to talk about the snow. And then right at the bottom of the car, Nate, it's going to say my name, Tony. It's going to have my phone number and it's going to have my email. And then right underneath that, it's going to have my boss's name. It's going to have his phone number. And it's going to have his email. And I'm going to end the conversation like this. And Nate, I just want to let you know, like this needs to feel different. For it, it should in in all these ways that just I just shared with you. And if it doesn't, please let me know. If you don't feel comfortable letting me know, my boss's name and email is right underneath that. And I want to make sure you'll at least let him know because it's completely unacceptable that this community, this apartment community, isn't the best look, feel, and smell that you've ever had. And I personally would prefer you to let me know because it means that I need to do a better job and I will. But if you don't feel comfortable doing that, obviously you have my, my boss's contact too. If you need anything at all, let me know. And then he ends the conversation, right? Um, so we, for all of our processes, by the way, it does end like that. We almost put like the resident as making them almost feel the owner of our accountability. But man, it's very hard for Tony <laughs> not to do his job when he's calling a shot on day one. And you might be wondering, well, what happens if he doesn't do it in 72 hours? Well, after moving, we have our, our we have a, a maintenance leader, uh, service tech technician that owns that property, owns multiple properties. Um, all of our, uh, we, we don't really do, we actually don't have property managers. So we, we can get into that if you want later. But uh, so we have a service technician and they have seven days to reach out to the new tenant, by the way. And then they call the new tenant, right? They introduce themselves. Hey, my name's Mark. I just want to let you know if anything doesn't work, that garbage disposal, blah, blah, doesn't work. You know, they're introducing themselves. And then they say, hey, and how was your experience with Tony? <laughs> so they and, and so they have, uh, after they're done, each step kind of um, has a cascade like that of accountability, just making sure we're all doing our jobs. And if everybody's doing their job, that means nobody else has to do anybody else's job. You just focus on yours. So, wow, if, if you didn't know what disruptive experiences meant like I did, oof, I think we just got a good lesson in it. And it's just so important, the experience that you're creating for your residents. And what I hear a lot of was sort of the importance of that first impression, you know, beginning from curb appeal all the way to gentlemen greeting you to service tech. And, and I don't remember exactly what the stat is, but I do know that if you drive a good first impression and a good first day moving experience with a resident, that it allows you to, to have an exponentially longer tenant stay 
uh, or residence day, I should say. So is, is that what you're finding, Logan, in, in, in your communities? Yeah, I find that we have more retention than uh, most people for sure, especially after we turn the property over. Uh, actually, almost twice as uh, uh, better retention. But I'd also say we also have higher other income and we're always pushing market rents too. Like in Wisconsin, other income, meaning any other income you collect other than rent is around 3%. Last year, we were at 11.8%. This year, we'll probably hit 15%. And I think I, I contribute that to, you know, nobody complains about the cost of Disney, right? If people that want to go to Disney know it's going to cost money, but they appreciate the experience and they appreciate everything that they're getting there. And I do think there's a lot of renters right now that do appreciate all the amenities or the experience or the things that come along with it. So just a different way of thinking, right? Can you provide such a high level of overall experience or we call them world-class standards that really people can't get anywhere else and kind of understand that it might cost a little bit more. So I, I think that's, um, it has helped us in a lot of different ways, Nate. Uh, it's, it's important. I mean, man, I wish, I wish everybody knew that, you know, you get what you pay for. So, you know, it sounds like people are certainly getting what they pay for and, uh, the tuna to hire other income areas. So, all right. So man, you, you sort of blew my mind a lot on property management. And I do just want to add, cause all every, everybody listening here can tell like the passion that you bring to this is just awesome. So I just, I just love it because, you know, most other property managers, management businesses are not sexy. Maybe yours is, I think it is, but Many are not, but but let's talk to another many a times looked at as a maybe not dirty in a bad way, but just dirty business and construction management. So I want to hear, you know, at least a couple of the processes that you have there, because I'm sure you have a plethora of them. Uh, and, and actually, let's just let's just start there. So talk to me about some of the construction management processes that set you apart. Yeah. And, it, and honestly, like all pools to property management, because when you think about like if you're going to rehab a unit, right? Um, I think that when you have a construction company or a general contractor that is not tied to the property management company, they only care about one thing, right? You know, getting paid and getting done with your project. You know, they do not care about the disruption they're causing the community. They don't care about the potential tenants that have to live through a construction zone. Um, so it's all about that. So like tying that all into the property management umbrella has really, really helped because just like we're trying to provide these unparalleled experiences, we're trying to provide world-class standards as well. And, and we only do what we call them uh, renovation techs, which is different than a service tech. Like a service tech in our company, by the way, only fixes things when a resident calls in. And you, you go to a lot of 100-unit apartment complexes, they have one maintenance technician. And I'll tell you what, nothing gets fixed the first two weeks of the month because they're rehabbing the units, right? Because they, they rehab or get the units ready and they do the service request. They're like, a, we, we don't even, they don't even cross paths in my company. We service technicians only fix uh, items that go wrong. They do not renovate units. It's a different skill set too, right? A service technician solves problems and strategizes and has to have an amazing customer experience because they're interacting with residents. Someone rehabbing unit never sees the resident. There's no one living there when you're ripping out floor. It's about speed, right? It's about, it's not about experience. And I think like we cross that path way too much. Um, and I will add with my service technicians, I'm just really proud of this. We're, we're two months away from guaranteeing that we will fix what they need to be fixed within 24 hours. And we'll guarantee that. So every day we don't fix it after that, you don't pay rent. 
So like we're really close to even guaranteeing that. Right now we're at 98% of the time that we can fix it within 48, but we're actually really close to fixing within 24. Um, and that's that's an unparalleled experience in a speed is lifetime type of core value. That You said about killing the experience with residents so that they renew and they stay with you. Well, you don't fix something. Like average across the country is 45 days. That's the average. Like look it up. For, you put in a service request, 45 days to get fixed. I know COVID kind of slowed some of that stuff down, but um, that's ridiculous. Rental. So um, I think a couple unique things we do. Let's talk about world-class standards and then we'll talk about speed i yep. love speed i, I was um, gonna get there so hey you're, <laughs> you're faster than to speed than i am it's great <laughs> um so world-class standards i think one of the things i just want to touch on here um at our company that we we do have we have 17 total teams right now that renovate units 24 7. they're led by a crew captain and then they have two rental techs underneath them and, I, and, and we just started with one, but right now, just a lot of people like to know like business architecture. They've got 17 different teams. I got two business, uh, two operations leaders above them. And then I have a director of operations above that. So how it works is uh, for, we will go in there and we'll decide if we have to do a light turn, a medium turn or a heavy turn. We decide that only based on our ROI or the vision for the property. And what I mean by that is my operations leader will pre-inspect that unit after we get the 60-day notice. He has seven days to pre-inspect it. So we'll go in there 53 days before that person moves out and we'll kind of create a path. Like, what do we need to do? And it's pretty simple. Like, okay, a medium term for us is around $5,000. We're going to put in all new luxury vinyl plank, trim, maybe change out a few fixtures and go after the bathroom and then obviously paint it because you get the best ROI there. But we're definitely keeping the appliances, the cabinets, you know, the countertops, and we're around 5K. If we're going to get $150 more in rent, we take the 150 times 12, that is $1,800. Then you take the $1,800 and you divide that by 5K, 36% ROI. I want to get my money back in three years. So it has to be 33% or more. Or what is better, that? Or if we do a $15,000 heavy rehab, we do everything, which we do a ton of, um, how much more can we get? And if that ROI is higher, we do that. So we just make a plan. But world-class standards for us, a lot of construction companies, a lot of management companies don't measure this one thing with customer satisfaction. When the resident moves in, we measure, are they wowed? So we have a unique feature in all of our uh, uh, units. So whether that's a cool backsplash or a really cool lighting fixture, it's amazing how much like lighting fixtures do when you walk in. But if you're gonna spend 15 to $20,000 doing a heavy, brand new everything, the residents should be wowed when they walk in. So we do just add one feature to it. And then we keep track of when the resident moves into their brand new unit, is there any go backs? If anybody's ever built a house, it's the same thing. When a resident moves in, if there's a scratch in the trim, we got to go back and fix that because we want them to be 100% satisfied. Um, so that is really tough. So we measure if you have one go back, that turn team, right, will not get credit. So they'll get a mark against them. That means the tenant was not satisfied. Just one. So I'm really, I'm really proud to say that we're, we finished around 99% of the, uh, 99%. So if 100 residents move in, we literally only have one go back. In fact, this year, we've had three so far, and we're at 290, I think my operations director just said. 
290 move-ins with he- with heavy or medium rehabs, and we've only had three go-backs. It's very expensive to go back. And also, I just can't emphasize this enough. If you as a real estate investor are spending ten to $20,000 and you got to send somebody back, like you're also not providing a great experience. No resident wants to move in when they got all the shit, all, all, all the couch, everything else, and then have to worry about someone coming back and fixing something that should have been fixed. So we do incentivize our teams and, you know, they know they're really checking it over crew lead, you know, the operations leader. So I would highly encourage that you have very tight systems around making sure that they're satisfied and then speed. I think one thing that shocks people is we turn units in 72 hours. So we even the get heavy, in there, even the heavy turns, even the heavy turns. Yep. Wow. 72 hours or less. So we crank these things in three days. Last year, July, August, and September, we did 153, 151, and 151 units in a month. Do the math. 17 teams. That's five rehabs a day finishing. We just, I mean, I repositioned 199-unit apartment complex and 114. Bought them in March of last year. I refied them in March of this year. Like 12 months. Did them all. Done. Um, we had seven other uh, apartment complex going on. So we're, these systems are wired. And it, and it starts with, though, like, sorry, I, I'm super passionate about this. Please. But, like, just think, think about, like, a normal property management company. The tenant actually moves out, and then they inspect the unit. And then they call the owner, like, hey, hey, Nate, um, you know, I think we should do uh, about $7,000 worth of work. You good with that? Like, and then you're like, well, can you tell me what kind of work? like that you're doing. Oh yeah. Yeah. Let me call my operations leader. I'll send you an email with all the work. Two days go by. I send you the email with what's going to be done. Right. You think about it and you're like, okay, go do it. I'm like, okay, you want us to do it? Just I'll find the GC real quick. Like I'll find a GC two weeks go by. We find someone to do the unit. Right. I, then I tell you, cause most general contractors are 30 days backed up. So then I'm going to tell you that, Hey, they're 30 days backed up, but they should get it done in another month after that. By the way, I can't find any appliances right now. So that might take it. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just super <laughs> it's so messy. True, though. It is. And and then you got all these like people saying, I can't turn units because I can't get materials since COVID. Well, that's because you're asking to get an appliance on the day the person moved out. Of course, you're not going to get a fucking appliance. Like, <laughs> you, like, we're ordering our appliance. Our process has 17 different steps in the term life cycle that nobody ever pays attention to. So, you know, step one I already shared with you, 60-day notice operations leader has seven days to be able to inspect the unit. Then they have three days to talk it over with their supervisor and actually put in all the materials they need. So our suppliers, we use Lowe's a lot, but we have a field. They get it 50 days before the resident moves out. 50 days. If, if we can't get something in 50 days and there's the wrong supplier, um, that's a big deal. And we can get everything lined up and we can get everything scheduled. So when somebody's moving out at noon, we're there at 1159 and there's a pallet of materials just waiting for us to 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 push in that unit and turn that thing. So like, I actually think a lot of our processes that speed up the turn actually happened before the turn itself. Actually rehabbing is not that tough. We go 24 seven. So, I mean, you can paint to use a unit overnight. You can clean it overnight. And, and if you got the same teams with cool names, like Alpha Team 4 that are super competitive and, and competing against the other team and waiting for the scoreboard to come out, because it, it's not even about like, you know, having uh, winning the bonus or, or more compensation is about actually just winning. Like we have a team with the longest street, right? 62 straight flips, one team with no go backs. Like they're not only proud of that, but they're bragging about it to the other turn teams, right? And I think like if you have a systematic approach of like the same guy that rips out the floor, puts in the floor, can you imagine once they've done a hundred of those, how 
Like you can just watch my team put in floor. Like there's, it's crazy. The same guy that puts in cabinets, the same guy that puts in, you know, um, a tub. It, and, and I think if you only have, we talked about accountability, if you only have two or three things that you do and that's all you do, then we can ask for them to do it at a high speed and at a high standard because they're not doing 37 other things. That's all they're doing. And they repeat it over and over again. And then you, you know, put some, put some uh, competition or some aligned compensation and now they're engaged too. So that just, that has really, really helped us speed that process up. Man, I mean, so many just core principles, you know, like keep the main thing, the main thing, you know, you drive engaged team or employees and how much more productive they are. And, and, and I thought I, I knew a little bit about setting expectations and holding people accountable, but to build this scalable uh, process and team and systems that you've done, it's, it's impressive, man. So then I want to, I want to zoom out a little bit and ask you a question that I think is related to a lot of what we talked about. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a make up a nickname. I'm really cheesy with this. I'm gonna call you a double P. So you're, you're the king of profit and the king of process. But, uh, but I want to, I want to ask you, so like, how do you look at building process or processes? I really want you to just break that down. So it starts with, I'm a big, I'm a big, uh, we spend about a hundred thousand dollars a year on people processes, like development processes too, but it, it starts with the people. So, you know, you should have somebody accountable for that process. And in my opinion, they should be helping you come up with it. Like if they, you want someone's buying, then obviously they should help develop that system. So we start before we actually put it into like a, a training video and an actual standard operating procedure, we walk through every single step. If you don't mind, I'll take you through a little bit of what that looks like. This is my favorite thing to do. Just did one yesterday where, you know, um, anybody says their, their standard operating procedures are like, can't get better, like doesn't understand process depreciation. Like it's <laughs> ridiculous. So anyway, so you go through every single step. So if you are in leasing, right? So I'll ask my leasing leader and we'll just walk through each step. So I'll, I'll say, all right, like it's your process. I know where it currently is. You wanted to make it better. Before you make any changes, you got to walk me through the entire uh, process itself out loud. And then we can put it down on paper. And it goes something like, all right, well, step one, you know, there is a move up, right? Can't lease anything if there's not a move up. All right, that makes sense. But that's not part of leasing. That's a different one. All right, then what? Well, then we got to get it posted. Okay. So how, when do we get it posted? Well, we have to get it posted on day 50. I'm like, okay, is there any, what, why would it not be posted in day 50? And he's like, well, the operation team didn't schedule it. Okay. What happens if they don't schedule it? Who's holding them accountable? So this is what we do, right? Like through all these things. And then he goes, well, uh, I guess that would be me. I'm like, well, how do you know they didn't schedule it? It's like, well, my marketing specialist is supposed to post it so he would know if it's not scheduled. I'm like, okay. So is the marketing specialist sending you an email with all the ones that weren't scheduled so that he couldn't post them on time so that you can follow up on somebody else that's not doing their job? Because people not doing their job need to be fired. So, and so we got to understand, like, are they not doing it because they weren't trained? Are they not doing it because expectations are not clear? Are they not doing it because they suck? And, if you know, let's cover one and two. And if it's three, then, like, let's move on. Um, it's, you know, it, we overcomplicate everything. Like it's just one of those three. If you ask the guy like, oh, you didn't know you had to do the pre-inspection in seven days. Okay. It's a training gap. No big deal. Let's train them. Like clear expectation, train, and then uh, develop. So 
Um, so we go through each of these steps and, and then it's okay. So he posted. it. Awesome. All right. So what happens now after he's done posting it? Well, we got to make sure the description is great. I'm like, who does that? Oh, our leasing specialist. All right. Awesome. How do you know if it's not great? Okay. Accountability, right? Then what happens uh, for the leasing agent? Because now we got to lease it. Well, we send out an email every day with any new listings. So the leasing agent would know right away. Okay, great. Do they have all the information? Yep. It's automatically put onto the site from the leasing specialist. Great. All right. So now walk me through a guest card, which is like any lead that would come in at our company, right? All right. What do they do? Well, they text them first. Like, okay. You got a script? Yep. Awesome. What happens if they don't respond? Like literally, like, right? I, I, I won't go, go through the whole thing, but like, I just feel like people don't do this. And if you just did it once, I know it sounds like it's a lot, but if you just did it once and you like built the standard operating procedure, can you imagine like how much more speed, the quality, the accountability that you would have? And people just don't do this, but we literally do. And, and every single step, who's accountable for it, when they're accountable for it. And if you can't tell the breakdown, right? We just assume that everyone's going to follow the standard operating procedure and nothing's going to ever go wrong. So then we don't create that cadence of accountability within it, right? Those checks and balances, um, you know, whatever doesn't get measured, you know, you're not going to drive. But it, whatever, whatever is not measured doesn't matter, right? Something like, yeah, something exa- like that. Exactly. Yep. It, it, yeah, exactly. Um, so that's kind of, does that answer yeah, the no, question? Ab- I can absolutely. I think, I think, you know, bringing it back to where you started too, you know, first off, no matter where you're at, I'm in the lending business. You're, you're an operator, you do a bunch of other stuff, but we are all in the people business. And so, you know, what's pretty cool about that is like, obviously a number of takeaways and breaking things down into micro steps and really seeing who's doing what by when and, and driving accountability and, and everything else there. But I think what's really important is the fact that you, you, you've, you said it quickly, but it's about having the verbal conversation first before starting to write it down because too many people want to just shortcut it and get it written down. But back to your people part is if they don't create it themselves or understand it and what you're doing is conditioning their mind to ask the right questions, then you're sort of teaching a man or woman to fish as well. So you're doing multiple things, not only in building just process, but just sort of setting expectations and empowering and enabling your people to scale and grow. And like, to me, I just, that's why anybody listening, you can probably hear my smile, but I've been smiling on video this whole dang episode because like this, this is just the stuff that makes me live and breathe and kick. And look, it's, there's, there's no doubt that all of this and then a bunch of other um, has allowed you to really be super successful in a very short amount of time. And I'm sure that that's going to continue on. So I don't usually ask this cliche. I'll, I'll call this the last question. I don't usually ask this cliche question, but I do have to ask it to you as a, as a closing one. So like, what, what advice do you have for the listener? Say it's somebody that owns and operates some number of, of assets and multifamily and some number of doors. What, what, is, what is your just advice to them to, in departing words? Hmm. Yeah, that's good. I mean, I've been, I've been thinking about a couple of things lately um, in questions I've been getting about the investors that you just talked about. I would say that a lot of investors in the real estate market I think it confused on what scaling takes. And what I mean by that is I do think a lot of people put scale into maybe how many doors that they own um, or our assets. No, I shouldn't say own, like assets under management, right? Because they only own like 5 to 10% of that. And that's not here nor there unless you're breaking about, you know, uh, uh, 
like you want more doors, but scaling doors is not how to scale necessarily wealth. It's not how to scale cash flow. So, and I think sometimes a lot of these real estate investors are putting a lot of time and effort into finding investors and finding partners um, and marketing. And I would tell you, if like that's you, I would encourage you to put a lot more time into understanding operations, being able to, so that you can ask the right questions. Because you don't need to own the property management company. You don't need to own the construction company. I actually have no problem with people investing in other people's deals. But if I was investing in somebody else's deal, I'd want to know enough to be able to ask the right questions to make sure that they did have the right systems. Because if you don't even understand what a term life cycle is, it's really hard to ask the right questions. And honestly, like you are a form of an asset manager. So you, you, you have to be able to ask the right questions to make sure that, that they're saying the right things. I mean, I even came across an investor the other day, Nate, that didn't understand the delinquency process. Like you don't need to drive delinquency. God forbid, you're not going to have to call the residents and collect delinquency. But do you understand where it should be? Do you understand what how your company is doing it, uh, the company that you have engaged to be able to do it? So like that, that's why I chose to keep a lot of the equity because I knew how to build systems in the company, which is great. But even if I didn't do that, I would just say, just understand a little bit more because real estate's like, I think businesses, I consider myself a business owner. I think real estate's actually pretty simple compared to business. Like, you know, all the processes are pretty much the same. All the operating expenses are pretty much the same. So it doesn't actually take that much to, to understand like where the expense should be, maybe what they should be doing. Like, right. It's not like, it's not, you don't have to be super smart just to ask like, Hey, when a tenant moves out, like, do you do the inspection like before they move out or after they move out? Like, cause I'd prefer it like before so we can make a plan while they're still there and I'm not losing rent. Like, right. Like I'm not, you don't, you don't need to be Elon Musk like to, to, to know that. So I guess that would be my advice is let's put a little bit more time. Like you don't need to be an operator. You don't need to execute. I know a lot of people hate that. I know people, I get it, but just know enough to be dangerous because at, your questions can be just as powerful as actually like knowing the system. And um, for those of you that are not a real estate investor uh, or, you know, want to scale or maybe first time, I've been on a really big kick right now about taking more risks. I just think school, um, uh, parents, Right now, society in general just wants people comfortable. And uh, when I started my management company, guys, I knew 15 I know I talked a lot about where we are now. Well, when I started out, honest to God, only knew 15% of what it took out of 100% to run it. Like, honest, I, I could not answer nine out of 10 calls. And I was answering. We started with five people. I was, of course, answering the phones. I answered almost every phone call that came in while trying to run the company. 15%. I had to learn the other 85% by doing. So like, that would be my like parting way. Like for, for anybody right now that you're on the verge of like, should you do it? Should you not do it? Like bet on yourself because I, I promise you there is going to be way more success when you bet on yourself um, and you take that risk. And I just, there's so many people saying not to do it these days. Maybe it's because we're in this economic environment too, but I just feel like everybody is just like, don't take the risk. I, I, I'm right now, I'm like 100% on the opposite end for most people. And I, and I love it. And when you believe in yourself and you have the right disciplines and processes and people around you, you can afford to take the risk um, as well. And so, uh, man, uh, very, very enlightening. I really, really appreciate all the knowledge you dropped. And we honestly probably just scratched the surface. So I'll definitely be bringing you back, man. But Logan, uh, in, in departing, how can people find you? Um, let, let's make sure we leave them with that. 
Yeah, that sounds good. I'm on both the social media channels. So Logan J. Rankin on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Um, Follow me there. Um, That's where I give out all the free content. And if you have any questions, you can hit me there too. My man, Logan. Thank you so much, brother. And just appreciate you being on The Real Estate of Things. Thank you. Appreciate being on, Nate. Big thanks and shout out again to Logan Rankin, a phenomenal operator who just really unpacked a lot that it's allowed him to be successful. Tune in every Tuesday for a new fresh episode to drop. Make sure you subscribe on your favorite platform so you do not forget. And you can always find all things on the Real Estate of Things at our website, www.realestateofthings.co. We will catch you next time. Are you a real estate investor looking for the right lender that can finance all your deals and help you scale? Lima One Capital has the best suite of loan products in the industry bar none. Whether that's fix and flips, fix and holds, building new construction, or buying rental properties, they have incredible financing solutions for it all. A reliable, common-sense lender is one of the most important parts of your investment team, and that's exactly what you get with Lima One. Let Lima One Capital show you how they've helped thousands of real estate investors scale and increase their wealth. Check out LimaOne.com or call 800-259-0595 to speak with a consultant in preparation for your next project. Thank you for joining us today on the Real Estate of Things podcast. Subscribe and tune in weekly for new content from the industry's best while we continue to unpack the nuances of this dynamic market. Follow us across social media for additional insights and analysis on the topics covered in each episode. And remember to rate, review, and share the show.